Okay, so in this episode, guest host Aurora Ford and I sit down with Julia O'Malley. Julia's been involved in Alaska journalism since she was 16 years old. She even talks about how the current editor of the Anchorage Daily News, David Hewlin, has known her as a journalist since she was a kid. In addition to that, her family roots are embedded within the Anchorage community. I mean, O'Malley Road was named after her grandpa, Doc O'Malley. We'll get to all that in just a second, though. Before we get into it, I want to talk a little about the Crude Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's an online subscription service that allows this podcast to exist solely on the strength of those who support it. That means no advertisers deciding what Crude publishes, who we can and can't talk to, and what we talk to them about. With the support of the Crude patrons, we're able to go into every conversation without having to think about appeasing an advertiser or a publisher. If that's something you support, then head over to the Crude Patreon at patreon.com slash crude magazine and help us continue doing this thing. Okay, company men. Shout out to Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, David North, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Shane Robinson, and Sharon Liska. Thank you all for your support. This podcast wouldn't be possible without you. Now on to our conversation with Julia. This is the longest I've had the chance to sit down and talk with her, and I think her perspective is really important to consider as we think about the future of Alaska journalism and the most effective way to tell Alaskans the stories that entertain and inform them. Okay, I think that wraps up this intro. Here's Julia O'Malley. Mike is hot. Mike's hot? Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's recording. That's what that means, dude. Crude Conversations. Listen more, then you talk. Go to work! We're recording. Oh, we are? Yeah. Ah! <laughs> For the listening audience, we can tell them I have my hat on over my headphones. But it's a Alaska Press Club hat. Yeah, yeah. it is. I wear Alaska Press Club gear. Like, I have, like, a uniform, like, um, like Smurfette, you know? Like, I just, I have, like, five Alaska Press Club t-shirts. That's, That's what I usually good wear. good swag. Yeah. So, I just wanted to let you know that you can cuss on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Say what you want. That's not good. I'm trying to quit doing that now. Well, you don't have to. But it's don't a feel problem obligated. that I... I have. I'm also drinking some fizzy water on this podcast. Mm. Yeah. I made coffee, but no one seems to want any coffee. No, mm. dude, it's late. It's like <laughs> seven at night on a Friday. Yeah, but that's when you drink coffee to get wild. Yeah. Okay. No. That's not usually how people get wild, but they're just showing our age now. <laughs> that's how I get wild now. Mm. That and uh, Beck's non-alcoholic. Oh, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. I just I just mix up my my fizzy water flavors. I had been mm. crushing LaCroix for a while, and then I realized that I was drinking like eight a day. Yeah, it gets expensive. Well, that, and and it was kind of messing with my stomach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the bubbles are like, yeah, you got to go easy. Okay, so <laughs> O'Malley Road here in Anchorage is named after your family, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was an indication for you to talk. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I know. Um, let's see. What can I say about it? There's a lot of stories. Like, I come from people who like to tell exaggerated stories with sort of fuzzy facts. Mm-hmm. Um, Please share some. But from the best, the best I can tell, the actual true story. So, old Doc O'Malley used to have an office downtown, kind of like. Um, and Doc O'Malley was your grandpa? Was my, was my dad's dad. Okay. Yeah. And he was, a, he was a doctor. He came here after the war. Actually, he and his wife, my grandmother, she was a psychiatrist, which I think is actually more impressive. She yeah. was, like, I think, the first female psychiatrist in the state. Um, but anyway, they were military. They came after the war and 
you know, they were actually pretty old by the time they got here. And then they started, they settled down and had nine children. But Doc uh, had an office in this place that, I don't know if y'all remember, there was a place, a restaurant downtown called The Muffin Man. And it was in sort of like a purple building, which then I think now it's like part of the Holy Family Cathedral. Like there's a lot of outbuildings to that. Okay. But anyway, right about there, there was an office where old Doc practiced. And, um, and he... Uh, also, because of the war, he inherited some uh, – not inherited. He got um, title to some homestead land mm-hmm. up on the hillside. And I think there's like a number of people who got land that way. And so um, it was up off of what's now O'Malley Road. And I think what happened is that he – they had to sign something to get some maintenance done on the road, maybe to pave it or something. And he offered to have the petition for all the landowners at his office, which was centrally located, and then was the first one to sign it and therefore had the road named after him. Mm -hmm. That's what I think happened. But there's a lot of stories like he delivered a baby for the surveyor who couldn't pay him. That's one. Or Mm -hmm. like, you know, I don't know. And I do think he like certainly contributed to Anchorage at the time, but I don't think it was like something that happened as much as it does now where people like consider naming something after someone. It's just like he was the name on there, so they just there just wasn't a name, and then (laughs) and and he signed the thing, and so they were like, you know, O'Malley Road, there it is. But you know, who knows? He was he like saw he was general practice, but back then, um, you could they did surgery and stuff, so he saw did all the flight physicals. He took care of all the prostitutes. Um, he took care of black people, which was like there was sort of really different racial politics in those days. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. You know, I think it's probably. I think he earned it. He earned it anyway. Yeah. Um, and he worked every single day, three sixty-five. That guy never didn't work. Um. So so you know, there it is. And then everything else got named after the road. What is uh? What's his actual name? You call him Old Doc, but I'm guessing uh, my that's dad. To- my dad is called Doc. As well, because he's a doctor, and my mm-hmm. brother is in medical school. Um, so my dad is new doc. Um, but no, he is uh, James O'Malley, and my dad is also James O'Malley. So um, what was your grandmother's name? You mentioned Virginia. Her. She was Virginia Wright. I mm-hmm. think she kept her last name. Um, she died when I was really young, and old doc died before I was born. So mm-hmm. I only know him through. Legends. The stories. Many a story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, he was also the jail doctor, which then my dad became the jail doctor too. Um, so, yeah. Have you heard any stories about that? About him being the jail doctor? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know exactly, you know, there's like, there's some kind of crazy story where he like, somebody told me some story where he, um, he stood on the chest of a dead man once so he didn't get blood on his shoes, but I don't think that's true because think about how hard that would be. Why would you stand on the chest of a dead man? Yeah, that's a... I don't know. It was uh, some... It, this is like a weird... <laughs> it was like a weird story that I was like, I don't... I don't, that doesn't make sense. I don't think that's like possible. Um, but one of the things that is true about him is that he came from a different era of medicine where it was before there were so many diagnostic tests. So doctors had to kind of have a lot more intuition and also to use all these sort of more subtle signs to see if people were sick. Mm-hmm. So my uncle did tell me that he could diagnose diseases by looking at people's fingernails and their eyes and smelling their breath. So I don't know what that means, but I mean, I, I kind of, I am, I'm more apt to believe that than some of the other. So that's kind of like Mally lore. smelling, uh, like a, a diabetic person's pee is going to smell a little bit yeah, sweeter. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. And all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, there was a whole kind of set of kind of folk skills that doctors have. He delivered a lot of babies too. So, you know, it was just a different, it was a different kind of medicine back then. Mm-hmm. 
Do you know um, why they chose to come to Alaska after the war? What did he do in the war? Actually, I, I oh, this is a this is a haze. These are hazy topics. Which too bad my dad isn't here. He knows them better. Um, he was in Africa during the war, um, and he either became ill or was distressed. But mm-hmm. he left. He came back. He was discharged with some sort of medical discharge, and that's sort of unclear. And then he and Virginia met um, when they were in California, and I think she was finishing up her doctor doctor training. Um, and you know, and he was pretty. He was older, and she was older. And then um, I think a lot of people came to Alaska for um, you know the opportunity. And it's possible he was still in service when mm-hmm. he came up here. That he was like actually sent up here. I'm not totally sure how that all. Worked. I'm just always really fascinated how anybody ends up here in the first place, even <laughs> yeah. now. I no. think I think it's to, it's to do with um it definitely is to do with the military. Now that we've got your family history or part of it, half of anyway. it, yeah. So when did you get into storytelling? Um, I was just talking about this today. I was like a slow reader. Um, I was dyslexic and kind of not diagnosed, and I I didn't learn to read till I was in about fourth grade. Oh, wow. Um, but the way I learned to read is I changed schools. I went to Susitna Optional and had this really marvelous teacher who got me to start writing things down sort of without judgment of myself, but just to engage my imagination about things. Um, and that was how I learned to read. It was sort of inside out where I started writing things and constructing stories and then, you know, was able to kind of then read um, after that and got and was really into reading then. And I'm trying to get my kid to be like that, but there's all these electronics now. Um, so I guess – you know, I had this great teacher who helped me to overcome a disability that allowed me to start writing. And then um, and then I was just like a kid who always carried around a notebook. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to have this one buddy and we would play spies all the time. And I would take like notes about things. So I just started to do that. And then I don't know. I guess I started then working at the newspaper in junior high school. Um, and this was Anchorage Daily News? No, I would like the junior high school paper. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. like it was back in the day. It was at Windler, and we would put the paper together with glue sticks and X-Acto knives. It was like before anything was digital. Copy paste. Yeah, yeah. dude. Um, and uh, we pasted up and we'd have it. I'm trying to remember what it was called. I don't know. And so then after I did that, I was involved in the newspaper at East. It was just like an activity that I did. And then I did, I you know, I, I was relatively successful doing that. And then my between my junior and senior year, I started, I got introduced to David Holdhouse, who was also East High alum. And he was sort of my first way into, maybe I was 15. Um, it was my first way into the paper. And I was 16 when I first started writing things. It was that summer that I was 16, I think. And you started writing for? Like the the feature section, um, I think. It, there was just like a lot of stories in the paper back then and sort of a lot of voices in that section. So I think I, I maybe my first story was like about teen sex, like about my friends having sex. And like, and at that point in my life, they just really encouraged me to be like, extra honest and confessional and my parents did not intervene in any way so i would write about my friends having sex i wrote about my friend i wrote a couple of things about a friend of mine who got an abortion um you know and i wrote about prom i wrote about getting people trying to sell us like 
all this crap for graduation. Like, you know, and I look back on that stuff now and it was like super duper honest and personal and also kind of mean sometimes. And I think like maybe someone could have like taken that down a notch. But at the same time, it's like you're at a time in your life where you just like don't have any inhibition. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of nice. I mean, that's it's real. It was really honest. So I think that those columns are successful in a way because they were like really raw like that. Writing something like that when you're that age, you're you're also going through like this significant maturation period. Yeah. I mean, like how I mean the cycle like physically and and mentally. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think that that affected you? Writing those articles and mutated having- my brain. <laughs> it really did. I mean, it changed it. I was in newsrooms from such a young age, like in that newsroom in particular, that it kind of, I don't know, those people kind of raised me, um, that community raised me. I mean, my editor now has known me since I was that old. Mm -hmm. David Hewlin has known me for that long, and I'm 40. Um, So, but it turned me into somebody who, for better or for worse, experiences a lot of things in my life as an observer. And and even the hardest things that have happened to me in my life, I've felt this need to document <clears throat> and report. You know, I don't know if that's healthy or not, but it's been sort of a, a way of sorting out and making sense of my own life. Um, I don't have, like, another way to do it without sort of organizing things into, like, well, how would I tell this as a story? Don't you think that can be helpful to other people, though, that are going through the same thing and maybe aren't as good at articulating what they're feeling and what they're going through? Hopefully. I think you know. Um, sure. You know, sure. Like, I hope so. I mean, I just don't, I don't have a different way of being and I'm not really good at anything. I'm not particularly good at much else. So that's the other thing is I didn't develop like good retail skills. I'm bad at a cash register. Like I missed out on all those things. You scoop an ice cream. Like I didn't do, I I was a barista and I sold some cheese for a while. But other than that, like my teenage (laughs) jobs were like that, those teenage job skills that could have come in handy later. Like I kind of missed out on that, which you know, there's been times when I could have fallen back on some things, you know, but I didn't have anything there. So there you go. And it's not a lucrative sort of line of work either. No, you definitely have to love it. Yeah. Yeah. Or get something out of it. Yeah. You know, you know I think one of the most important things that I've learned about pursuing a career in journalism is that it, it like feeds your soul. You know, after you get to a certain point, you're like, you know, you're confident in your ability and maybe you can't buy the new you know, Ford whatever truck, <laughs> right? <laughs> but but you and you can have all these flashy, you know, um, toys out in your front yard, but you have these pieces that you've written or you've had the, you know, podcasts that you've produced or these things that are like pieces of you out yeah. there. You know, I my feeling on that has changed a lot over time. I was actually talking to a friend about this recently because – um, there was this period of time when I was a journalist, like when I was out of college and I was working in journalism out of college and I just, I had this desire, had all this stuff pent up inside me and I just wanted it to be heard. Like I was like, oh, I can tell this story and I want somebody to hear it. And, um, so I worked super hard on that. And then I got the, in this whole phase of like wanting to win awards mainly cause I wanted to win money. So I would like enter these contests all the time and I got pretty good at figuring out how to win stuff, you know. Um, And that was also driven by this need because I lived in Alaska to sort of like line myself up with like other people and see if I was good enough, you know, because that's what happens when you live here. You're like, maybe I'm playing JV. Like Mm -hmm. I got to, you know, I got to line myself up and see if I'm like as good as these other people. So then there was that phase. And then 
I don't know, like, this is this weird story that I tell sometimes, and so sorry if people are listening that I've heard it, but, like, then I had all these, like, trophies and obelisks and, you know, like, framed plaques and stuff, and a dispatch came and bought the ADN, and um, I couldn't work there anymore, and I had them all in this, like, box, and I didn't know what I was going to do, and I, like, took them home to my house, and I um, put them out back. These homeless guys would come shuffling down the alley, and... The other thing in that box, there was, like, a tape recorder and, like, some Hewlett Packard speakers, you know, like, for, like, an old computer. And pretty soon, sure enough, they stole that tape player, and then they stole the Hewlett Packard speakers, but nobody had any <laughs> use for those obelisks and, like, you know. Um, but oh. and, and that was right about the time my second kid was born, and I just had this moment where I was like, well, you know, I wanted all this, like, recognition, and I got it, but... I don't know, like, here I'm, like, holding a baby, like, living in this town, like, not doing your journalism, and, like, I just, I was thinking, like, ma- that's not really what I, what draws me to it. I don't have a hunger like that. I mean, I had to kind of work through that, but I don't have a hunger like that anymore, so I had to kind of reframe why I was trying to do it, and then I had to do it to, I, then I started freelancing, and I had to do it to survive, so that really takes the pleasure out of it. You didn't ask this, but I will tell you the final part of the story now. The earthquake happened, right? And I happened to be at the ADN in the office. And, you know, once I, we got our wits about us, we started working. And um, and then my phone rings. It's the Times. They're asking if I wanted to freelance a story about the earthquake. The New York Times? Yeah. And I was like, no, no, I can't. And then the phone rings. It's my editor from The Post. And he's like, do you have time to freelance a story about the earthquake? And I was like, I didn't want to freelance for them. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the thing I wanted to do is, like, write a story about how to turn off your gas. And honestly, like... And that to me is kind of now where I get my kicks is like if I can write something that can be of use to people, like that's that's what's redeeming to me now. I just want to do stuff that's of that serves the town that I care about. Yeah. Because like I have written for the Times and the Post and that was a thrill. And those editors are wonderful. And th- some of those stories had like a really far reach and I'll do it again. It was really fun and cool. But that writing for an audience of people that you don't know, that's not where the juju is for me. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I, I don't know. Um, but I had to try it and do it to see if I could. And once I did, I was like, that's awesome. But it doesn't feel quite the same you know, as just telling people how to turn off their gas after an earthquake, which to me feels right. Just to see if I understand this, it went from recognition. You're pursuing this recognition because we're here in Alaska and looking kind of for recognition outside, right? Right. Outside of Alaska. And then you find out that as you've gotten older, more uh, journalistically mature, that what it really is about where you find the thing that really, you know, feeds your soul is community service. And, yeah. and things that, that are actually helping your neighbor. Well, people that you know in the town that you care about. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, the thing is you have to work through all that stuff. You know, um, plus you're all insecure in the beginning. You're more insecure. You know, and and um, one of the most, I think the central exercise of journalism is like, well, the thing that happens as you grow up in it, I think, is that that insecurity, if you're doing it right, you can let go of that and you can sort of turn it into humility. Mm-hmm. You know, like insecurity and humility are like cousins, you know, but yeah. the insecurity is really about this, your own ego, but the humility is about that learning process, about listening and about quieting down your own fears and needs to like walk in the shoes of somebody else. And that's essentially like 
what the exercise of journalism is, right? Is like trying to let your reader walk in someone else's shoes or better understand something. And so I don't know. So for me, that's sort of where I'm at with it is like I want to feel good about what I'm doing in my town. Do you think that you had to go through all of that to get to where you are now? Yeah, of course. So I guess the, the reason for asking the question <laughs> is people that have, that are in your position, and you, I've done it myself, where you're kind of preaching to younger kids. You're preaching to the youth, and you're saying, yeah. um, you know, you don't need to pursue that. Whatever you're doing can happen right here locally or, you know, something, something to that effect. Yeah. But they're not going to hear it no. because they haven't, they haven't been there. No, they haven't got that process. recognition. It's a process, you know, but people don't – sometimes people get stuck in it, you know, um, getting that, like, inferiority complex about Alaska. But, you know, the thing that for me was the reason that working for The Times was important um, is that I was like, oh, I can work at this level. Like, the work that I have done and the preparation I have has put me in a position where I'm not, like, worse worse than everybody. Like, I can manage at this level. And, um, and that – I can manage at this level and people and do well. And so it, it it's important to go through that whole process to be like, does my work compete? You know, do I have the skills to compete in this wider world of journalism? And if and then, you know, and if you need to feel recognized, then do that stuff. I mean, it's all part of it, but it's good if you can kind of transcend it that need for personal recognition because I think it flames out after a while. You know, yes. journalism isn't really like a – it's not a mechanism for the ego at the end of the day. And if you do stuff because you want – you're feeding your ego, either your insecurity or whatever, you get into trouble after a while, you know, because um, that's – you just – you got to be thinking about your readers mm-hmm. all the time. And it's nicer if they're people that you know, mm-hmm. you know, I think. But you got to learn all that. And that's just how I tend to feel, you know. Um but you also don't get better unless you try you figure out what the standard is and compare yourself to it. Mm-hmm. You had said something a moment ago about um, you know, sort of your practice in journalism being that you wanna you wanna help other people, well, help others walk in somebody else's shoes. And um I've read was reading back some over some of your old work and you did um you've done some a lot of work around homelessness and the opioid epidemic and some of those stories we're very personal and you are like walking along someone and writing down your observations um, and trying to like show the outside world what it's like to be in this person's shoes. And some of it's pretty heart wrenching. And my question is how you go through a process like that with somebody and then decide which aspects of it need to be in that story because they're helpful and which of them are are too personal and like how how hard is it to walk that fine line? Do you know what I mean? Like, well, I tend to not try to sort of filter someone else's story. Um, I like to think, like, if you're doing it right, you're sort of a conduit, a kind of a vessel for a story that somebody has got to tell. So I don't feel like I I try not to get into the exercise of trying to protect protect somebody from themselves. You know, um, I let them make – I, I involve them in the process of constructing the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never surprise I never surprise people with what ends up getting published about what what their story is. Um, so I'm real hands-on in that regard. Yeah. And if I'm reading some part of a story back to a subject and they feel uncomfortable, you know, 
we talk about it. And then then the question comes, is this essential to the story? Mm-hmm. But that I look at it as almost like a con- sort of part of the the structure or sca- sort of scaffolding, you know, and it's just like, well, can this story hold up without this thing if somebody doesn't feel comfortable? Yeah. But I kind of allow the person to tell their own thing. And I don't know. I mean, you could make an argument that you could be more protective about it because you have a way better sense of how these things play out. But I've had decent luck with it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I know what you mean about that inclination, that instinct to try and protect people. Um, that's a, yeah, that's a, it's a hard thing to fight. And that's, that's what I was curious about because mm-hmm. it seems like you've done some, some hard pieces. I, d- I definitely have, but I kind of put it on that person, you know, what's the story that you need to tell and how can I get out of the way of it, mm-hmm. you know? How often nowadays with journalism changing as much as it has, do you actually get the opportunity to, like you said, read back a certain portion of the article back to the person and kind of workshop it, not necessarily workshop it with them, but is this necessary for the article? I don't usually frame it like that. Um, I usually double check every portion of a story um, with the source. And I catch mistakes that way. Um, but I I figure that, I mean, I'm not letting politicians workshop their quotes. Like, that's ridiculous. But, you know, most of the time I'm writing stories about regular people. So I I always call that person and I always say, okay, listen – because you're paraphrasing stuff. you Sometimes you don't hear things right, you know, or whatever. And um, I say, okay, well, so this is what I'm going to say. And this is what I heard you say. And does that sound right? You know, and they'll be like, yeah or no. I check all the name spellings. I go through like, and usually also that conversation, there'll be like holes that I, in the story. So I can fill that stuff in. Um, but I don't, I don't like workshop it so much as I like kind of, it's like a rapid clip that we go through. I just I pretty careful though about saying this is this is what I think I heard from you. There's a lot of times that I'm not right and I cringe to think of the time when I thought that like I could get it on the first go around and write it up and put it in the paper. You know, I cringe to think about like the mistakes I probably made in that period of time. Um but it it has, certainly hasn't hurt me to go back to sources and double check things even when people say things that are controversial. You know, you're like, okay, I heard you say that, like, you weren't a really big fan of, like, Martin Luther King and just want to double check, you know, and people will be like, yes, that is what I said, (laughs) you know, I mean. Is that a real example? Yeah, but then I feel better about putting that in the newspaper because that person is like, all right, buckle in, buddy, you know, like. (laughs) You're going to get it. Yeah. um, So, you know, but, and, and I, so I just, I don't see anything wrong with that practice, but it's, it's a real, it's a, it's a boundary set though, because you're not, you don't want to encourage somebody to, you're not giving that person editorial control. Mm-hmm. You're checking the facts. There's like a difference. I think that that right now it's really important to talk about journalism and, and how it's produced because there's only, you know, unless you're a journalist or an editor or somebody working <laughs> at a paper or at a, a news organization, you don't know how that's, that's, that's happening. And so when you hear certain things like, oh, that's fake news, they, they oh. take that. And they lump it all together. You know, yeah. TMZ is somehow the same as New York Times. Right. And- yeah. I I guess uh, it is – it's good that we have to be transparent and figure out how to tell our readers how we build stories. I think that's an important exercise. I think there was a time when journalism – journalists, print journalists is all I know about, but 
we could kind of decide what was important based on our own sort of anecdotal understanding and intuition. And we were kind of gatekeepers about who could be in the in the public conversation and who couldn't. And because of the internet and social media, that's all changed. It's very democratic. Now we find ourselves actually responding all the time to things that go viral based on sort of what the hive mind thinks. Um, so, I mean, I think there's some good things about it, but one of the things that's complicated is that there's a lack of literacy, media literacy in the general public. I mean, I taught college for a couple of years and was surprised to find 18 and 19 year old students who couldn't differentiate, you know, a source that was completely false from like a source that was credible and also couldn't articulate like what it was that you needed to have to be credible and why it was important that you are the New York Times and not like you know, crazycrosseyes.com or whatever, like, you know, or I don't know, but yeah, like, yeah. Um, and so that stuff, the like, the skill of sorting, of differentiating what seems credible and what doesn't, um, of being critical of what you read and thinking about whether or not something's coming from a point of view, differentiating straight news from opinion, those kind of explicit conversations are probably not taking place enough in the world of, you know, in probably sixth grade up, you know. And part of that, too, is because parents are not native, digital natives. So their parents, you know, parents are at all different, have all different sorts of relationships to that technology. So that's like a place in which it allows then for all this confusion to sort of bubble up over what's real and what's not, and also allows for like powerful figures to undermine the media. However, you know, undermining media is a time-worn practice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, propaganda, just as propaganda is a time-worn practice, we're just seeing it now on social media with, like, fake news, but they were dropping leaflets full of fake information, you know, during World War II. Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think we've dropped leaflets over country. You know, I mean, it's like it's mm -hmm. the same kind of stuff. But when we don't have a, a populace that can sort out all of that, you know, really fluently, that's what gets us into trouble, allows for the sort of fact-free things to rise to the surface. I think there's also like a, a growing sort of this weird distrust of institutions. If everything from like vaccines to, you know, uh, I don't know, it's like we distrust the government, we distrust the media, we distrust people who have been educated and things. There, We're at a moment where there is this sort of populist distrust of institutions. And, and you know, even like we don't quite trust election, whether elections should be the way, you know, I mean, it's like it's all mm -hmm. this stuff. And so it's a really important moment for us to reaffirm our commitment to the importance of these institutions that hold up our democracy, you know. How do you think we're going to <clears throat> fare in the whole situation? I'm really encouraged all the time by the way that people are particularly attached to local news. And I would say that Earthquake was like a really nice example of that. It was like um, the paper had all kinds of traffic and people subscribed and thought, oh, I should like pay for this. And it's just like the, th the thing that we have to keep saying to the public is like, sorry, you're going to have to pay for this. But if you like it and it's important, and most people will say it is important, it's not the same as like what they're watching on cable. This is like, what is that building burning down in Midtown? Oh, shoot. How do I find out about that? Mm -hmm. Is the, you know, how do you turn off the gas? Is the Seward Highway closed? You know, people actually care about that. They want to know about that stuff and they're willing to pay. So I'm encouraged 
it's been really affirming to be at the paper in this rebuilding process after the bankruptcy and just see how much the community actually wants to hold on to having a paper. Um, so I, I actually think we're kind of turning a little bit of a tide there. What happens if we lose the paper? Well, there's always going to be stories. You know, I don't think we will lose the paper. The paper's doing just fine, actually. Um, and I think the paper's going to be okay. I do. And it has a local owner that is smart. It's got, you know, it's starting to break even. It's selling ads. It's diversifying its income streams. We've got grant funding, like more than we've ever had before for journalistic projects. We're really ambitious and working on things. So, you know, Alice almost killed it for just Alice being, Rogoff? being mm-hmm. dumb. Yeah. But it wasn't going to die because newspapers are dying. It was going to die because it was just like grossly mismanaged. That mm-hmm. was why I was going to die. Um, but, you know, there's still a market for what we do, and it's more important than ever, and people are really attached to it. And, you know, we have started to understand the analytics of how it all works and what people want and how to deliver it and how the platforms work, all that stuff. So I don't know. I feel like we're actually at a really promising time. But those digital subscriptions are sort of where it's at. Um, and that's the, that is the mark of a healthy paper is growth within those in those digital subscriptions. So if you are like, oh, I support the newspaper. I want to have it. Subscribe. Mm-hmm. Digital subscription. That's what you do, you know. Um, from my perspective, I think that we forgot how important local news is for a while. We did. And we were so bombarded with national news that is not personally affecting us on a day-to-day basis. Right. And you've brought up the earthquake, which I think is a great example because we're like – we can't get off on this exit now because it's totally in shambles, you know? And then you see our community come together and it blew my mind how fast they fixed that that exit. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. That was nuts. So you're seeing people remembering how important local news is. I I agree. And you can see with public radio and, you know, right now we've got the governor is like cutting funding to public radio, which is kind of among all of the other things we're gutting and killing. But, um, right. But uh, the thing is, is that people, and especially in a place like this where, you know, the newspaper of the city is also kind of a newspaper for the state, you know, people have always valued things that connect us over long distances, that connect us to the outside world, that also reflect back a sense of our unique identity. And um, I just think that it's like we have had such an explosion in choices that as a newspapers, you know, we've had to re-articulate why we're important and also repair, you know, things that have been broken in our community and learn what our community wants more, you know, than, because before we kind of acted on gut, but now we have analytics that tell us and there's a lot of surprises in there, you know? Mm -hmm. Can you give an example of something like that? Like, I think there's less interest in local sports than you might Mm -hmm. have assumed. You know, people just aren't getting their information that way, you know, that would be an example. Or there's like a ton of interest in like anything to do with the PFD. You kind of think that those stories are sort of dry, but they just like break the internet, Mm -hmm. you know, or I mean, it's just like certain things like I'm involved in a project around food. And we're sort of trying to figure out, okay, like, what sort of food content actually has an audience has a has a and the other thing is we look at our audiences like what are the which is the loyal audience which is a new audience we're trying to cultivate the loyal audience that was local that we want to please you know and it's like okay well which of these recipes what kind of recipes do these guys like and they they really like food reviews but only certain kinds of recipes you know and you're trying to 
So it also kind of, sh- now that we have information about what people like, it shapes what we offer as kind of an experiment. But like, mm-hmm. they really like that recipe. I wrote a recipe for, um, for like a, there is a historic recipe that we have in Alaska, which is like a salmon pie with rice. It's called P-Rock sometimes. And uh, it's made all around coastal Alaska. It's like a Russian influence thing. It has sometimes as boiled eggs in it and stuff. And I made a version of it. And it just went bonkers. Mm-hmm. It was like super popular. I mean, bonkers for recipes. None of them go crazy. Um, <laughs> sure. But, you know, meanwhile, we had a recipe for like a, a beautiful lemon meringue pie. Like just a gorgeous lemon meringue pie, but it didn't do that well. Even though the image was gorgeous, who doesn't like lemon meringue pie? But it was like, you could get that, you can get a recipe like that anywhere. So we're starting to learn like recipes that are nostalgic or connected to place or have like mm-hmm. a sense of, you know, a, they are in some way reflecting back our identity. A little more uncommon. Yeah, people How are that into that. blueberry curd tart thing that you made go over? I saw that photo and you were <laughs> I right. never, That is one I, of the most beautiful I never pieces of dessert I've ever wrote seen. The rest, I haven't written the <gasps> recipe yet because I'm still working on the well, I need blueberries. Anyone, my listening audience can hook me up. But um, also, like, it didn't set up, like, as much as I wanted it to. Like, um, so I was going to try it again. I was actually going to try to make it as a, in a key lime pie version. Mm-hmm. So that was, like, a lemon curd. Um, but I was actually thinking about doing it like a blue key lime pie. But I think – I don't know. I don't know if it will work. So the recipe wasn't, like – the texture wasn't, like, totally perfect. When you figure it out, do please post it because it was beautiful. I'm definitely going to write that recipe. People are into that one. Mm-hmm. I should – yeah. I just got to get some blueberries. Do you have any culinary training? No. Um, I – for many years, I was, like, a James Beard taster. So you're, like, secret and you go and you eat at restaurants and report back to the James Beard Association about – how things are and what's good and what's not. And it sounds like a great job. It was it 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 didn't give me it pay me any money, but I did get That's, tickets to like yeah. this James Beard Award ceremony, which I could never afford to actually go to. But um so I did that for years, but it made me really taste critically. And um and then I got I just got really into it. And then um I started hanging around like Kim Severson uh, is this writer for the Times, but long ago when I was in high school, she worked for the ADN, um, and she's always written about food. So I think she sort of mentored my in- or piqued my interest in that from a young age. Um, but uh, anyway, so then I really came at food as an eater, um, and and so then I started really paying attention to cr- food criticism, and I mean I've worked in kitchens. And then I I have a big family, and so I cook for them. And then, you know, and then when I left the paper, I was, like, home with my kid, and I needed to make some money, and I knew I liked cooking. And so I just – and I've always been a big, you know, recipe head, cookbook head, like, all that stuff. So I just started writing these recipes, and that, like, led me into all kinds of things. And Mm -hmm. then I, you know, I did a – I brought Sam Sifton here to do a workshop on food writing, and – um, spent a lot of time with Kim and then, you know, after a while, and then I, I don't know, it just sort of snowballed after that. But that's the thing about Alaska, right? You can like just sort of think, well, I, I want to write recipes and then you just like start doing it. And before you know it, same with like, I want to be a poet. Like, you know, I don't know. Someone's yeah. like, and then someone's like, I need a poet. Get that one person over here. And like, <laughs> that one before person. you, before you know yeah. it, like. You're the poet. You're the poet. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So I don't know that's how that happened. But now I'm really disciplined about it. I cook all the time. I test recipes all the time. I'm like a 
in, I'm really obsessive and I cook through cookbooks. That's the other thing. And I, and I think I, I taught myself to cook through food blogs. Like I, um, I cooked every recipe on the blogger. I followed bloggers like really like early follower of Pioneer Woman, early follower of Smitten Kitchen, early Mm -hmm. follower of 101 cookbooks. Like, and I cooked every recipe and I cooked them three times. And I like, I just got really into that. So I guess I just, I, I got, I got taught to cook. Yeah. Um, you know, that way. Were you aware of the the Alaska food scene back in the day? I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I started to become aware of it because I always was, like, sort of in the orbit of um, the, like, play section and its predecessor was this thing called Eight. Um, and so I always – and I ate with Kim a lot. Um, I did food reviews here and there. I worked for the Anchorage Press, which is always kind of cognizant of the food world. Um, so – and I've always been, like, a really, really – I'm an eater. I'm always like trying out stuff. I I have like a couple of homies that I would like always try like ethnic restaurants with, and um, and so, and it's also like a form of entertainment here. Mm-hmm. You know, you like try restaurants because like it sucks out and seems like it'd be fun to eat somewhere new. Yeah. yeah. Um. So it just became like a pl- a pleasurable obsession that I've always had, and then I started writing about the census. Um, when I came back to the paper in like 2005 or whatever, um, it was like or 2000, yeah, 2005. There, there was like it, there was really dramatic census change, um, and so I found myself the population, right? Yeah, the po- okay. so and we had like had this big shift. There was a lot of immigrants and refugees more than there had been before. It was really changing the way that the city and state felt, and so I started doing all those stories about that. But guess what? You find where you find yourself it's writing all those stories mm-hmm. in people's kitchens. Mm-hmm. In people's restaurants, in people's grocery stores, and in people's bakeries. And pretty soon, you're like, you're eating some, you're eating Korean food, and you're eating, you're at the Lao Buddhist temple, and you're eating sacred foods that are made of rice and steamed in, you know, banana leaves. And you're, you know, all of a sudden, it's like food becomes this lens to understand a place because everyone wants to talk about it. And the act of feeding somebody is intimate and trust building. And it's also just like endlessly fascinating. Um, so this sort of all of those things kind of culminated into this into sort of this weird hobby of eating food, trying food, asking people about food, buying weird food. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so the book that I just finished is it's this sort of weird sort of genre of subject matter called Foodways, which is about the intersection of food and culture, mm-hmm. sort of like w- how you describe the food culture of a place. And I don't think, as far as my publisher can tell, there hasn't been a book written about that in Alaska yet. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like this perfect storm of things to do with like the eating and also the place. So that's been really fun. And that exhibit actually opens – the book um, is the research for a food exhibit that opens at the museum next Friday. Um, the Anchorage Museum? Yeah, the Anchorage Museum. And it um, it will be open for a year. Um, but I'll be um, handing out some pilot bread uh, next Friday, <laughs> 5 <laughs> to 7. <laughs> that's great. This should come out uh, next Thursday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would be great. That would be perfect. <laughs> anyway. That's the 1st of March, correct? Next Friday? No, this is the 22nd of February. Oh, geez. Okay. Getting ahead of myself. That's all right. <laughs> Aurora and I talked about the importance of food and getting together on the episode we did with Lisa Sauter, the mm-hmm. executive director of Beans Cafe. Um, and you kind of you kind of touched on this with with uh, the kind of the synopsis of your book. 
Do you think having a meal as a group, large or small, is important to community? Um, come on. Yeah. In Alaska, food means something more because the things that we do to hold on to each other, you know, in a wild place, in an isolated place, those things are they – t- they have more meaning than they might other places. I mean, food is always a connector. Food is never about food. It's always a carrier molecule for some – for all these other sentiments, you know, whether it's longing or connection or – origin or history or identity like food carries all of that right but man in alaska it's like especially in rural alaska it's like when it's time and you go down to the gym and you look at the you know the lunch table that somebody put like you know some they rolled out the paper on the top and they taped it down and then it's like crock pots and those like big things of rolls and rice and fish and you know white fish and a gudik and like all this different stuff, that's who we are. That is a value that we have. And um, that sharing, that generosity, and that means more too in a place where we experience abundance and deprivation and such Mm -hmm. polarity. So the giving of food in the season of, you know, deprivation, it just, it's really meaningful, but it also speaks to the core values of this place, which is, it's something to do with like, you're always going to share. And that's a subsistence value, but it's a, I would argue that subsistence has influenced all of us. You know, you're always going to share. You're, you know, you're going to invite the people in. There's always going to be room at that table. You know, those are sort of some of the things I think that are really part of our core values. It's just the same as like when you see somebody along the side of the road, you're always going to stop. You know, if you don't stop, you're from California and you can just go back. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I've had people like I've encountered people who are like not from here and I'll be like, you know, and somebody will need a jump in the parking lot or whatever. And I've literally been like, where are you going? You stop right now and you go get your jumper cables. You jump that person's car. Do you really help everybody out that you see? For the most part, you know, but, you know, really, that's just part of our value system. And it's we're going to help people like you do. I mean, if you think about it, especially if you're like, you know, you're up at Arctic Valley and somebody's in the ditch or whatever. For sure. You know, you're a dude with a big truck and you see like a woman in a minivan, which is me. Like (laughs) people stop. It's just part of our values, you know, but people share. It's part of our Do you do this as like investigative journalism? Like you'll go up there and (laughs) break down? No, I drive a terrible, terrible car that gets stuck (laughs) and is currently like needs a jump if anyone wants to hook me up. Um, But, uh, but you know, but I just I just think there's some different there's some things about our place that are different. But the big table, the long table, that is like it's really symbolic of like our food culture. That's like who we are, I think. Mm-hmm. Um anyway, I don't even know what you asked because I got off on a subject. It's a great answer though. So so yeah. there you have it. Yeah. And so you have how many how many children? Two, two little boys. Do you make a point of having dinner and eating at the table every night? I wish that I was better at that. My children have really disappointed me in that they have like <laughs> they are not interested in my cooking and they are not interested in sitting still and they are only sometimes interested in eating at the same time that I'm interested in eating. So we eat together but not at this point in their lives, not every night. They like want to eat ramen. They want to eat like mac and cheese. Hot dogs? No, they don't. For whatever reason, they're not into those. They like chicken nuggets, though. They like the nugs, the dino <laughs> nugs. Um, the, and they, but they also like want to eat them at like 
5 p.m., you know, and like that's just when we're getting home. So I'm like, all right, here's your macaroni and cheese, like bust that out. And then like and then I cook something. But my my oldest in particular is like super picky. When I was before I had children, I would have been like, oh, certainly we will all sit down together and we will <laughs> munch munch on our organic arugulas together. You know, and now I'm just like, here's some peanut butter on a saltine. <laughs> like, could you eat it? Like, because I don't want to have to feed you when it's bedtime you know but I just like if I can just get calories in them it's fine so I I, at this point my cooking and I'm I'm single so I you know I could I I don't know at this point my cooking is sort of haphazard and my sitting down for dinner is sort of haphazard so I'm sure that will change with time (laughs) I mean I'm sorry we can only hope I mean that your kids will want (laughs) to sit down I thought you were meaning the single part. I was like, maybe. (laughs) I I don't know. Maybe you like being single. No, I don't. I don't. But anyway. um. (laughs) So Alaska has always been behind the curve on on a lot of things. What kind of reaction have you encountered, reactions have you encountered in terms of your sexuality, uh, either positive or negative? Well, it's sort of complicated. I was married to a woman for – about 10 years and we were together for 17 years but now we're split and I don't know what I'm up to now we'll see but I was surrounded by like a really liberal sort of loving family and I just was really insulated you know the other thing is is that I um I'm I'm feminine looking you can't tell like I pass as straight um and I've always passed as straight so I never really I it was really infrequent that I wasn't in a situation where I was in control of the information about like, you know, my relationship status. Like I had the option of telling that and I had the option of like, you know, doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have lived a privileged existence and I've been out, I was out in print at 16. Um, You know. What was that like? um, I, I got, I did get some, like there were some kids who were sort of trying to bully me at school. But the other thing is I had such a turbo awesome group of friends. Like some people like made signs about it and like were lame. and Signs? Um, I can't even remember the whole thing about how it went. But it wasn't very traumatizing. It was like they were like, she's a lesbian and like put up signs around town or whatever. Um, I, I think I was out in print after I – maybe I was. I was out in school when I was 16. I think I was out in print when I was like – Later than that, mm-hmm. if now, if I think about it. I can't remember. Um, but I dated girls in school and I dated dudes in school too. But um, And so people try to bully me. But like seriously, I had this like posse of friends who like were super loyal and rad and their parents were super loyal and rad. So I just – people were so good to me besides institutional discrimination like stuff to do with, you know, not getting benefits or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not – People were not and, – and also, like, once I was – I was involved in, like, some of the community conversation around, like, one of those ordinances. Mm-hmm. And there were some, like, disgusting things that people would write, you know. But people also – I would say I was definitely more disgusting things were written just because I was a woman, not because I was married yeah. to a woman. Um I think that if I was going to classify the discrimination that's been more important, like difficult and hard to manage, certainly would be sexism and not uh, homophobia. And I, st- I still like find myself in situations where I'm like, wait, what? 
this is how this is going to go because you're a dude and I'm a lady. Like, okay. Um, and I that's been much more powerful and also problematic for me. Mm-hmm. That Does it seem stuff. like it's getting better? No. That was kidding? something that I was going to ask you about too because because I have also run into that. Is <laughs> if like well, it's just if it was getting better. I, I think something does is better in that. Like I think when you're in your early twenties, like there's a lot of opportunity for you. I think that when the hammer comes down is when you have children. Mm-hmm. Then it's like oh wait oh okay your office is not structured to allow you to have a schedule that lets you take care of your children. You're going to be trying to pump your boobs in like a weird closet or in a bathroom and it's going to be super dumb. You know, you're not going to have paid maternity leave. Um, You are going to be held to exactly the same standard as people without kids. Um, Even though you're working two jobs, you know, you've got your kids and you also have your regular – you know, I mean, it's just not set up for women who are mothers. And so there's that. The other thing that happens is you just reach a point when if you were a guy and you were in the same meeting, you would speak with authority and people would listen. But because you're a woman, uh, you kind of have to – you have to carve out that space and people still mansplain stuff to you like all day long. Like I sit in meetings all the time and I'm like, this is a Saturday Night Live skit that I'm in right now. <laughs> like, did you really just explain that to me? Like we just award authority, you know, at a certain level in my career path. I just feel like authority is awarded to people just surely because they're like – dudes. And they also, you know, aren't worried about their kids right now. Um, So there are just these complicated dynamics. They're not overt. They're not overt. And they're not intentional. But they're just annoying and sometimes problematic. And then you have to decide, like, am I going to be the one who's like, hi, you just mansplained climate change to me. Like, could I show you my byline in the New York Times where I wrote about climate change? Like, because <laughs> yeah. I, I'm familiar with those dynamics. Like, you know. Yeah, and pro- then you're the jerk. Right. Then you're the jerk, number one. And number two, that just cuts you out. Yeah. You know, so I guess so. you're just like, okay, thanks for explaining the difference between climate and weather. I'm, like, happy to know that. How do we fix that? I'm, I was offered far more flexibility by my workplace than I think I would have a generation ago. So certainly there's been flexibility, but I, the actual corporate structures that existed, like there was no way to offer me paid maternity leave, you know, um, that kind of stuff. Like so some of it is just like putting the things in place. So there's childcare, healthcare, flexible schedules, uh, and – you know, realistic expectations for people. So there's that. I don't know how you change mansplaining in meetings. I don't know. Do you have an example for us? I just gave you one. Like, oh, the change. climate change. Yeah, that's it. Like, yeah. I can't talk about, you know, it's just like, <laughs> you know, whatever. Or like, we talk about education and we like only talk about like two statistics that show that like our test scores are poor. And then we're like, that's how we know that Alaska's education is failing. And I'm the only one with children in school and I'm like, well, I'll tell you, man, my school's my kid's school is amazing. And all I can see when I look at what's going on in the Anchorage School District are tons of choices. And man, are there a lot of problems for these educators to solve. And they've got all these languages spoken and all of these different, you know, economic issues and 
you know, different levels of parent parental involvement. And, you know, they've got all this stuff. And I see nothing but dedicated people trying super hard. And they're like, you're going to have to get past that because we know that education is failing by looking at this here singular statistic. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, well, so my experience isn't worth anything because it's not a statistic. But, like, I actually am, like, living in this world and experiencing it and that – you know, and th- these would be classic, you know, because I actually have a degree in women's studies of all things, but um, be like classic sort of things where it's like women's experiential stories are like discounted in favor of like some sort of like whatever singular numerical number or whatever. You know, I mean, it, it mm-hmm. would just that's like that's like a classic sort of thing. But I mean, that was just like sort of an, an example, but it's just like I don't. I, I sit there in, the, in a meeting and think, well, okay, well, maybe my experience isn't good enough. You know, you know, it's just like a woman's experience with her kids in school. I mean, but you're also really seeing other other parents and other kids in their experience, so it's not just your experience, right, right, right. But so, but anyway, I guess what I'm saying is just that, like, I think some of it is just like teaching us to think about and listen to things in a different way. It's also about like nuanced arguments. I do find that personal stories, especially in a room full of people where people are disagreeing, tend to transcend partisanship. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know. Communication systems are complicated and, and office dynamics are complicated, but there's just a lot that's entrenched in the way that we operate businesses that doesn't make room for Anybody with kids, men or women, really. But women traditionally are just like doing more of that labor. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I can see that there could be some changes. Like really we should we should not be the only country like like us, like every other country that is like a not a developing nation has paid maternity leave. Yeah. And we don't. Um like what is that? You know? Um so well, I, I think we're obsessed with with working, you know, that, that, that you have Puritan work ethic, you know, mm-hmm. and that's what we always fall back on, which is entrenched in, you know, religion. And, and All so if you're not working, your worth. Exactly. Um, but man, like taking care of those kids, somebody's got to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I don't know. So also that rub between advancing in your career after you have kids and also trying to be a good parent. I mean, that's just like the condition of modern womanhood and it's easy to like take out a lot of anger on the corporate structure but it's even good goes far beyond that it's about like our expectations for ourselves you know it's impossible it's impossible to win it's unwinnable really don't you think we've we've gotten better though i mean sure and there's certainly been progress over time we got we got the vote we -hmm. women are voting now since the 20s you know we've got but beyond that we have women in all the halls of power. However, we're still making less money. Um, you know, there's. it's easy to get into this thing of like, well, you know, there's been feminism and, you know, we've got the WNBA and we've got, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and we've got like whatever, all this, Hillary Clinton, like all that stuff. Um, it's easy to sort of look at point to all that, but it's just like, it's important to remember that, it's just not as obvious and pronounced now, but these mm-hmm. kind of things that make it difficult for women still exist. They are nuanced and complicated and kind of woven into larger issues that have to do with like race and class and sexual orientation. And um, But that said, you know, it's just important to pay attention to those things. I think that the dynamics of privilege, um, I hate talking like this. We got to stop soon. Um, <laughs> but teaching my white male children to understand that they are handed privilege 
just sheerly just walking, just like I was talking about being able to pass as straight, right? Mm -hmm. um, the same is true, and that gives me privilege, right? I don't yeah. have to worry about things. Um, but just like the same is true for my my boys, like they're little white boys. Like if they were black boys, like the world's going to treat them different. We know that's true. And, um, you know, and that they need to be aware of what their privilege means. It's not invisible. It's not the invisible thing to which everything else is compared. It's got meaning, mm -hmm. carries meaning with it. And they just have to understand that. And I think pointing that out to them is sort of part of my job as a parent, you know? It kind of seems like maybe the thesis here is that we all need to be a little bit more self-aware. Yeah. Well, self-aware and also it's like we're all imperfect, mm -hmm. you know? And that's the thing too is it's like, okay, I feel like someone's mansplaining to me something in a meeting, but like it's a perfectly nice person mansplaining. So, And like you said earlier, it, it, maybe <laughs> they don't notice they're doing it. No, because mm -hmm. like – and that's what I mean about the way these things play out is it – you know, there was a time when it seemed much more overt. It was like Jim Crow. Like that's pretty overt. Yeah. But microaggressions, that's a whole co – another complicated conversation about things like – that are just about ignorance and lack of self-awareness and not purposeful, you know. And so how do you correct that behavior with love? You know, how do you correct that behavior in a way that somebody hears it and feels bad but doesn't feel so bad that they're just like, F you, you know, because um, none of us are perfect. Yeah. That's the thing. Um, none of us are perfect. And that's the thing. And that's really the thing, like the potent relationships for all of us are these personal ones. You know, it's like how we treat our neighbors and how we know people who are different than us and we come to love them despite and, – and that's actually one of the things about Alaska that I think is most profoundly important is how we – all of us go through the act of loving people that we don't agree with. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean – and like I had a – I have a friend who's, you know, like he's kind of liberal and he's like, ah, my family's watching Fox News. And I'm like, I know, but like what a privilege to get to learn to love somebody like that. To have to work through loving somebody that you don't agree with, who you think is just like boneheaded, right? Because there's got to be – because that right there is how we heal our partisan, mm -hmm. divided country, right? Where we can see each other for things that aren't just about politics, you know? It's like looking for these ways to transcend that where it's like you go to church with people you don't agree with. You go to a concert with people you don't agree with, but you're all singing along, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And that's and that's really how we dig ourselves out of this ridiculous partisan moment that we find ourselves in. It's in those. It's just in being real with people, and it's been and it's inviting diversity into our lives. It's inviting the challenge of difficult conversations. So really, it's about me staying in the room and being nice and not freaking out when I'm mad because I feel like people are being sexist. You know, it's like me still showing up and participating and choosing my battles. You know. Uh, and not taking it so personal, too, because sometimes things are just ignorant. They're not personal. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I've, got, I've done like a full about face in this in this podcast. <laughs> Started out like raging against machine and now I'm like, you know. Well, you're allowed to feel different ways at different times. Thanks. Mm -hmm. It's a little therapy. It's a little therapy group. <laughs> sure. Thank you sure. for sharing. I'm going to pass the talking feather. <laughs> um, okay. So to close this out, on the crude Instagram – I told our followers would be podcasting with you, and they sent in some questions. Okay. So I – should we get into those? Yeah. Okay. Fine. So Aaron DeVore, I hope I'm saying that correctly, asks, do you have any advice for a single working mom who's a hopeful writer? Yes. Um, and that is just figure out a platform and write 
whether it's a blog, whether you want to contribute, but you have to build in, just like, you know, we have to build in time to go for a walk. You have to build in time to just write with abandon where you just have to give yourself permission. And I'm I'm like, I'm such a zealot about this. I was, I was teaching this today, actually. Um, you just sit yourself down in front of a piece of paper and you just put the words down and you think you don't even have to look at them again, maybe. But you just give yourself a little bit of time. And I, I mean, I take notes for five minutes every day where I just take note of like what I'm thinking about, how I'm feeling, you know, um, what's stressing me out, what's not. But, um, and that's not poetry or anything, but you just begin by getting into a practice of like just putting some thoughts down and building it into your day whatever that might be. And because really writing is not about talent at all. It's not. It's it's just about showing up to the page and trying again. Um, it's all discipline. It is not talent. It's all discipline because inherently we are all storytellers. In fact, it's the most natural form in which we communicate. Mm -hmm. We are mm -hmm. listeners and storytellers. But it's just having to clear all the garbage out of the way. And one way you do it is just by getting up and like jotting some things down. That'd be the first thing to do. But it, it sure isn't easy because it's not easy to exercise either. It's not easy to do anything. But like if you want to do it, you just have to you just make 10 minutes. Start out with just make 10 minutes. Would you still, this day and age, tell young people that journalism is a career they should go into? Oh, heck yes. Journalism is a service profession. It's like being a priest or a doctor. <laughs> um, probably those two other things are more helpful, but um, you do it if you are curious mm -hmm. and if you like your place. The practice of journalism is like a sort of long love letter to a place. And um, it is a love letter to its people. And it is about really examining a deep examination of a place. And so I think that if that appeals to you, if you're curious and moved by that, then you, you should do it. Mm -hmm. If you want to make money or be famous, you should not do it. Um, <laughs> if you are fulfilled by intangible things like – damn, that person's story is so moving or holy cow, this huge thing's happening and we need to pay attention to it or that person's getting away with something and we need to figure that out. If that sort of thing appeals to you, you should do it. Um, if you can afford to though, that's the only part that's depressing to me about statements like that because I absolutely agree with you. But like, that's also the only way that you can afford to be a teacher or a social worker or um, what do you mean? those service industries. It's You got to not make you, a lot of money. Yeah. Um, you got to be able to get by without a lot. You got to not be afraid to have kind of a skimpy retirement account. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm a um, I'm a real fan of like investing in real estate as a retirement. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, also good advice. Yeah, there you go. Okay, um, but uh, that's all true. Um, it's it's a little bit like being an artist. Mm -hmm. Um, it isn't really art. It's craft. Um, but it um, it's a little bit like you. It has to pay you in a different form of currency. Um, and it takes a lot of time to sort out sometimes. People do it for all kinds of reasons or they don't know why they're doing it. But there comes a point where you like – where I've watched tons of people have to decide whether they're going to – they can keep up with it or they got to do something else. Does that say anything to you? Like maybe these people are – 
like they weren't cut out for it or I mean when you look at say yourself yeah. or I mean I'm also speaking from a personal perspective is I've seen people you know get into journalism try to do the thing for a while and then you know they realize it kind of fell on its face and then they're like okay I'm going to go and be an accountant or you know whatever yeah right? uh, you know the thing is is also it's like something you you know like sometimes we'll go like i go through phases with church like i'll go to church a whole bunch and then i'll quit going um and but it's not like that doesn't inform my like worldview right and the thing with journalism and a, a really smart person told me this when she left journalism to go be like a complete badass in pr she was like um all of your skills are super applicable to all these things. Another thing somebody told me is you'll never work as hard again. And it's true. It is such hard work. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I'm I'm really headed toward a different, you know, for me, like daily journalism probably isn't going to be my jam. Um, I think a longer like I'm working on a book proposal. I would like to teach more. I find teaching is really gratifying. Um, but I would like to find ways to write things that are a little bit more considered but maybe aren't necessarily like my main livelihood because I've tried that and that's like pretty catch as catch can. And now that I have kids, you know, I have to think about it too. You know, and I, I think I will stay as – I will continue to do journalism but maybe not quite the same as I was, you know. Yeah. Sorry, I was looking at – I was trying to make sure that this next question uh, from Victoria Peterson – Oh, uh, she's my stu- she was my student at UAA. She and she does the Spinardian. Yes, yeah, with Sam Davenport. Yep, yep. But I wanted to make sure that it wasn't too similar to the question that you just asked. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, no, no. I, it's it's a little different. So, what do you think is the future of Alaska journalism? You know, I I actually think we're seeing it right now, and the Spinardian is a good example. I will say that, like, so I assigned them when they were like sophomores journalism students to go all write culture stories about spinard (laughs) so i feel like i had a hand in the spinardian somehow um but i think that there's just it's just trying to what we're working on right now is developing a sustainable business model there's always going to be a market for it in alaska in particular man you just aren't going to find these same stories in Detroit. I, I think Detroit, as a bad example, Detroit probably has cool stories, but. Oh, they do. Um, but, but, you know. They're going to be different stories. They are. The but same. there's just, Alaska offers such weirdness and such craziness and such interesting stuff. And it is this like unfolding soap opera with all of these characters. And you just get to know them over time. And I mean, I don't know. I'm just so, in, I'm so enthralled by the story. It's like, I'm like, it's like net, it's like a Netflix series. I like can't stop watching you know um if you love alaska and you're a journalist the future is that you can keep on doing it there's always going to be people who need it are you going to become a millionaire probably not marry rich that'd be a good idea um (laughs) but you know even so like you can make a perfectly good life a perfectly good life without on a journalist salary like you can be okay you know, and then you also get to furnish your life with stories, with the memory of all things, the ways in which you got to understand the place where you live. So, you know, it's a trade-off. Thank you so much for being on the show, Julia. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Okay. <laughs> That's it. Okay. <laughs> you can support local grassroots journalism at patreon.com slash crude magazine. If you're not familiar with Patreon, 
It's a platform that makes it easy for you to support content that matters to our community for as little as $1 a month. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Intro music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 